0: is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 91810, the City of Burlington versus Daig.
1: Mr. Clapp? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. The issue presented in this case is whether a district court in determining a reasonable hourly fee or reasonable uh, Fee award under federal fee shifting statutes may enhance that award above the lodestar amount in order to reflect the uh, fact that plaintiffs' attorneys have taken the case on a contingent fee basis, thus assuming the risk of receiving no attorney's fees at all. In this case, the district court denied a preliminary injunction motion and ultimately issued an order on the merits which denied all of the relief sought by the plaintiffs and granted relief limited to the ratification of a pre-existing state court order. On that basis, when determining the reasonable attorney's fees to be awarded to the plaintiffs, the district court concluded to award the full lodestar amount and, in addition, a contingency bonus or enhancement to reflect uh, the fact that plaintiff's counsel had uh, taken the case on a, on a contingency mm-hmm. basis. Uh, the decision that the enhancement award was an order was based upon the bizarre conclusions that, the, in the first place, the plaintiffs' loss of the preliminary injunction motion somehow entitled plaintiffs to be compensated at a greater rate, uh, not only with respect to the effort expended with respect to the preliminary injunction motion and other claims that were lost, but with respect to uh, all hours devoted to the case. Uh, Secondly, the court based its decision on uh, its determination that a plaintiff's attorney who brought and prosecuted the case with no guarantee of an enhancement was nevertheless entitled uh, to the enhancement award. This case we submit demonstrates an example of the Hensley Lodestar method of fee calculation uh, run amuck. Our response to the precise issue uh, presented to the court is first, no enhancement for a, of a Lodestar fee to reflect, reflect risk of loss contingency should ever be granted uh, for the reason that any such award of an enhancement is necessarily speculative and contrary to the evidence of uh, the market's response to risk of loss assumption as demonstrated by the evidence before the court.
2: How about that it's contrary to the fee-shifting statute?
1: It's also, for that reason, contrary... Should we start with that? Uh, well, uh, the fee-shifting statute provides, of course, that uh, fees should be uh, reasonable, and this court has determined on several occasions that. And
2: it only provides for fees when you when you when you win. That's correct, Your Honor. Not so
1: th- when you lose, precisely the the, the point that we were uh, raising with respect to the basis for this court's determination. And it is absolutely uh, bizarre.
2: And if you're getting enhanced uh, when you win, you're getting enhanced and being paid for when you lose.
1: That's correct. That's a plain old statutory question, isn't it? We would, we would certainly contend that, that it was, Your Honor. The uh, respondents we anticipate will argue that, on the basis of economic theory, that uh, despite what the facts show, the enhancement should be uh, available in order to encourage uh, the bringing of these types of lawsuits in general. And the the arguments for
0: both sides are pretty well set forth in the various opinions for the court in the second Delaware
1: case, aren't they? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, The difficulty with the various opinions set forth in the Delaware case is that both... Pardon? That's a major problem, of course, but (laughs) I will address my comments for the moment to... Otherwise, you wouldn't be... Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. And you wouldn't be being paid to be here. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) Very true. I would like to address uh, uh, my observations, if I could, for a moment, to Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion and the uh, dissenting opinion in uh, Delaware Valley 2. I I would like to preface those remarks by pointing out that this Court determined in Delaware Valley 1, or set forth in Delaware Valley 1, in Justice White's uh, opinion, that the whole purpose Or this court's selection of the Hensley method of fee calculation was to avoid, uh, was precisely to avoid the sort of arbitrary and capricious conclusion that enhancement of an otherwise reasonable lodestar fee presents. Uh, The difficulty, it seems to me, with both the concurring opinion and the dissenting opinion in Delaware Valley II is that neither of those uh, opinions address the difficult issue uh, that arises when a court attempts to venture beyond uh, its role as a fact-finder and to begin enunciating policy.
3: Mr. Clamp, may I ask, uh, a question to show my ignorance of this whole area of the law, <laughs> where did the term lodestar come from?
1: Uh, Your Honor, it? I understand that the term lodestar was coined by the Third Circuit and its early development of the method of fee calculation that refers to a base of all hours expended on a case, reasonably expended on a case times a reasonable hourly rate. Uh, beyond that, I cannot explain the derivation of the term. It
3: always struck me as a strange kind of it term. It struck
1: me as a strange term, too. But, but that's it one nevertheless was adopted by this Court, wasn't it? The,
2: <laughs> the term was adopted by this Court. as yes, well. And, and the we method do do, we
1: do do strange things. The method of Sorry,
3: decisive.
2: <laughs> the, Sorry. the
1: method that is referred to by the term uh, that was adopted by this court was a modification of that third circuit approach that had been developed prior to that.
3: In computing the load stars, now that we know what it is, you do take market forces into account, do you?
1: It, my understanding of that, uh, Your Honor, is that the market determines what the reasonable hourly rate to be used in calculating the fee is.
3: What if what if an economist could convince us, and I probably, probably couldn't, that the market is different? In a free market where you're just charging clients and you don't have government mixing into the thing, the market pays a little more when there's a contingency involved than it does when there's no contingency involved.
1: Assuming that such evidence could be developed, then... That evidence would simply be evidence of what the market rate is in that particular market,
3: and then it would indicate that the contingency factor would be reasonable, I guess.
1: It would and already. It would, the higher, I, it, would, it would simply indicate that, to whatever extent, that market compensates for contingency. That figure is already reflected in the in that market hourly rate. On the load the
3: loadstar assumes when it's when it's worked out that there is a that if there has been a contingency factor, it was taken into account in computing the load star. It's
1: taken into account by the market, in determining what the market rate was. And the courts should be limited to simply determining what that market rate is. <clears throat> but it isn't. A,
2: it isn't <clears throat> the fact of contingency, uh, is it? It's a It's a question of how
1: difficult the issue is, what kind of skill it takes to win. The definition of the risk of loss is complicated, Your Honor, and I would uh, address that question specifically by saying uh, whether or the extent of the risk of loss in a particular case is a function not only of the complexity of the issues advanced, and to that extent the plaintiff controls that issue by the uh, extent of the relief that is granted or requested in a case like this. Mr. Clough. <clears throat> yes, sir, Mr. Justice Black.
0: I have a question, and
1: perhaps I should <clears throat> direct it to your opposition.
2: <clears throat> but isn't there a state law claim remaining in this case for which damages are available?
1: There certainly is, Your Honor. There is a state law claim remaining for, <clears throat> uh, on, on the face of the complaint for a million dollars.
2: Well, how does that uh, affect the outcome of this argument?
1: Well, uh, assuming, Your Honor, that uh, a rational uh, support for fee enhancement, Lodestar fee enhancement, could be constructed. I think uh, Amicus, uh, the American Bar Association, and this Court in other occasions has recognized that uh, a, a fee arrangement between plaintiff and their counsel, may have the effect of reducing whatever risk would uh, otherwise be inherent in, in a particular case. Thus, in this case, as we understand uh, plaintiff's arrangement with their attorney, if the, uh, if the plaintiffs are successful in establishing a, a right to a fee award in this case, that will be the limit of the compensation that they receive. If they are not, plaintiffs will still be compensated on a percentage fee basis for uh, any work that uh, is performed in this case, assuming that they are successful in establishing their state-related claims to damages.
4: Assume that we say that contingent fees are inappropriate uh, and the court is concluding a lodestar fee. And the court hears expert witnesses or or considers an affidavit. And the testimony is that in cases of this kind, since recovery is uncertain, the hourly rate is generally $50 an hour higher than other hourly rates. Should that be included in the lodestar amount? Uh,
1: We think not, Your Honor. The market rate, which should be used in calculating the lodestar, is not a reflection of what a particular supplier in the market hopes to obtain. It should be, and we contend under the, the Hensley lodestar method should reflect how the market compensates for those services. Not to repeat. Well, what, what, it, well, well, what if the testimony
4: is. is that this is how the market compensates for it?
1: Then, the, then the market rate uh, in that particular case would reflect. Uh, the
4: $50-an-hour the increase?
1: The $50-an-hour increase.
4: Well, then, uh, are we engaged in a circular enterprise no matter which way we rule?
1: Uh, to the extent that the court becomes involved in trying to parse the elements that a particular market rate reflects, my answer to uh, Justice Kennedy's question would be that there's no need for the court to get involved in that parsing. The market reflects whatever considerations the market considers in fixing a, a prevailing market rate.
4: Well, should the market be defined as the market for attorney's fees generally and not just for fees of cases of this type? Well, uh, So that if you were the trial judge, you'd ask a defense firm what they charge an insurance company by the hour and use that as the rate?
1: Uh, the question before a court uh, in any... A uh, fee fixing case, uh, fee shifting case, is what is the appropriate market rate to use? The evidence that the court uh, considers to be relevant with respect with respect to that particular market's compensation rate might include uh, how much attorneys generally charge uh, for the provision of services. The precise question would be, how does the market compensate attorneys providing similar services and having similar uh, uh, skills. uh, Well, if there's no
4: objection to to the trial court taking into account the discrete market, which consists of those who undertake representation in cases of this type, and if that discrete market includes an enhanced hourly rate for the contingency factor, uh, then it seems to me it makes no difference what we rule in this case. We might as well rule against you and have it all out in the open.
1: Uh, I think there is a basic uh, distinction that the lodestar method uh, adopted by this court contemplates. That is, there, in effect, uh, there is no market that measures risk of loss contingency compensation for these types of cases because the market is, in fact, determined by the courts and not by market forces. There is no relevant market to look to to attempt to measure uh, any difference in compensation for risk of loss in these particular okay. types of cases as opposed to the Mr. Clip, market in general.
3: Yes? Could Mr. I, could I test that with you just a moment? I know when I was in practicing sometimes you take a case and you get say paid say maybe then it was twenty five or thirty dollars an hour a win, lose, or draw. But if you were going to take the case and and you make a deal with the with the client that if I win it, you'll pay me forty dollars an hour instead of thirty or twenty-five. Now which and that's that's say all lawyer a lot of lawyers made those same alternative offers to their prospective clients. Forty dollars if I win, I get paid but I get nothing if I lose. Twenty-five dollars, win, lose, or draw. Which is the right lodestar fee, in that market? Say that's the evidence?
1: If that's the evidence, Your Honor, the evidence with respect to the forty-dollar fee is irrelevant to this particular market. Let me explain very very briefly why. That forty-dollar fee is negotiated between the lawyer and his client. Uh, That forty-dollar fee typically, in a tort contingency uh, case, uh, uh, reflects cross subsidization of other efforts by that attorney representing similar plaintiffs. Uh, and the point, finally, uh, Mr. Justice Stevens, is that th- you simply could not, uh, no court uh, could determine how that particular market compensated for risk. That $40, $40 that you're quoting, represents that particular attorney's uh, but, hope with respect to a fee review.
3: No, it's the bargain. The client had the choice. He could either make the $40 commitment or the $25 win, lose, or draw. And you mm-hmm. what, you say the $25 fee would be the one that would be the market determined?
1: That's correct.
3: But what, the other one is also, but in the market has, has the other alternative. But it's it's, uh,
1: it's uh, a different market from fee-shifting statutes for the reasons that I... Oh, I see.
3: We have a, Special market when there's a fee shifting statute.
1: No, uh, we have the market. Uh, whether we're talking about a market for legal services or a market for automobiles, your honor, reflects different subclasses and That's right. uh, fees you that are negotiated. You get a
3: warranty and a guarantee than you do if you don't when you
1: buy a car. Well, but uh, fees that are determined with respect or by negotiation between a, a party and his attorney. Against the
3: background of what alternatives are available in the market.
1: Uh, But that understand, Your Honor, that in these sorts of cases, in fee-shifting cases, uh, the client is going to have no interest in uh, in, uh, limiting his attorney's compensation where the case is on a contingency basis because he's not going to pay it anyway. It's going to be someone else who will pay that fee. He might as well agree to a rate of... uh, In your example, two hundred dollars.
3: No, but I'm assuming he he would. You try to make him. You make the statutory fee be one that would be a duplicate of what would have been negotiated in the free market. That's what I was suggesting.
1: And and my response to that is, Your Honor, if the free market doesn't reflect that hourly rate, to the extent the courts intervene in making the legislature, if
3: it wasn't determined by market forces, I mean, do do you think just the lawyer just cooked it up out of thin air? In my hypothetical, don't you have to start from the assumption that he thought that the that the market would justify these two alternative ways of computing a fee.
1: Well, uh, the market might uh, well, did justify that, Your Honor, but <laughs> it would not be the result of uh, a free market operation. It would be the re- result of negotiations between that party. But
5: your, your argument assumes that if the client had hung tough and said, no, $25 is as high as I'm going to go, uh, he would have taken the case anyway in a contingent fee. The client had said, you know, twenty-five dollars uh, only if you win. That he would have taken the case anyway, and that's that's. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think we can make that assumption, can we? As, it's uh, not necessary. If we are, are fact finders. May, the... maybe what you're saying is go ahead and make that assumption and see what happens. And if it turns out that nobody takes these cases, then then maybe you better better modify your assumption. But if you can. If you, the court, can hang tough as a fact finder and still get the lawyers uh, that's that 's what you
1: ought to do well, and my response to that should be your honor if is that if in fact the market rates are insufficient to attract counsel, then Congress should make decisions about what uh, what steps it wants to take to enforce. It's policy. It shouldn't be Well, isn't, the, isn't,
5: the, isn't the, the, uh, the, the problem with that response that uh, Congress, uh, I thought, uh, gave the courts the responsibility for determining a rate that would, in fact, attract?
1: Congress authorized the court to award a reasonable fee. It did not, it seems to me, nothing in the statutes or the legislative history authorizes the courts to legislate, make legislative decisions about. What that reasonable fee ought to be.
5: But I thought you were telling me that if we took the hang tough position as fact finders and said, look, we're going to latch onto the $25 figure, uh, and if it works fine, uh, that's that's the figure we'll use uh, for the future, uh, maybe adjusted for inflation. If it doesn't work, We'll go back to the drawing board and say, maybe we'd better go up to 40, and I thought your response was, no, no, no. it's up to Congress to decide whether to go up to 40.
1: That's precisely my point.
5: Well, I think you're saying, then, that it is not our receipt, it is not the Court's responsibility to determine, as a matter of fact, what is necessary to attract counsel to take these cases. Uh, you're saying, if the Court comes up with a figure that doesn't attract them, too bad, the Court's job is done. Look to Congress. Isn't that what you're saying?
1: Uh, in essence, that's what I'm saying, Your Honor. Any other solution necessarily gets the court involved in those sorts of policy decisions. What, to what extent should uh, our system encourage the bringing of these sorts of cases? Those are policy decisions that Congress uh, should make and that this court is, frankly, not equipped to make. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Clapp. Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I'd like to begin by uh, addressing the question that has arisen already as to, as to what uh, hourly rate a court um, does look at and should look at in calculating the load start. I, I would note that at page 14 of the ABA's brief, um, they, they mentioned that the only ascertainable prevailing market rate is the rate charged to clients who pay regardless of the outcome. So as a a practical matter, uh, it is is difficult, if not impossible, to find lawyers in the market who who tell their clients, I will charge you $25 an hour uh, if you're willing to pay, regardless of whether we win or lose. But if, if you want me to take this on a contingency basis, then I'm going to charge you $40 an hour.
0: What what about the situation, which certainly was more common at the time when I practiced, I'll either take it so much an hour, if you're good for the fee, win or lose, or else I'll take one-third or one-half, you know, not always one-half, of the recovery (laughs) If, if, if we win. How does that fit into the picture?
6: I think that that is still the prevailing practice, that, that when a lawyer takes a contingency, uh, makes a contingency arrangement, he contracts with the client for some percentage of the ultimate recovery. Now, Justice Stevens raised the question, well, what if you can get an economist to come in and say, I've looked at all of these contingency arrangements, and I've decided that, in fact, they end up amounting to $40 an hour of compensation for the lawyers rather than $25. Um, We would say that it it may be fair in that case for a lawyer to charge $40 to his client, but the fairness in in that instance resides on the fact that it is the product of a consensual arrangement between the plaintiff and his client. In the fee-shifting context, the situation is very different. There isn't this consensual uh, relationship at all that determines the payment. In fact, the defendant uh, in the case is required to pay the plaintiff not based on the defendant's conduct that led to the suit in the first place, and for that matter not based on the defendant's conduct during the trial. When you you say a fee is fair in the sense of the $40 fee, you mean it's fair
0: by virtue of the fact it was consented to and not by virtue of the fact that it represented market? That's
6: that's correct. it, it, to put it another way, the fact that it is consensually agreed to is what makes it uh, the market, you know, what the market calls for and what the market will provide. The fee-shifting context, by definition, is very different. The very existence of the fee-shifting provisions means that the normal market is not going to operate in fee-shifting litigation. Well, doesn't, doesn't that simply
5: mean that you've got to look for your examples outside the sphere of these kinds of cases?
6: And th- that's correct. You do have to look outside but of the... Uh, but it
5: doesn't mean that the $40 is not the market figure, assuming that that was not a case of this sort, assuming we're outside of the sphere of cases. The $40 is still the market figure, isn't it?
6: Yes, it may be possible to establish a market figure that prevails in the private, unregulated market. But to apply that in the in the context of fee shifting is to, is to say that the defendant should pay not on the basis of, of what he did that led to the lawsuit but on the basis of what arrangement the plaintiff has made with his
7: client. Do you think you can establish such a contingent fee in the private market for a category of cases? No. I mean, isn't it the nature of a contingent fee that it, it depends enormously upon how good the case looks to the lawyer?
6: That's right. I was, I was assuming in my, my earlier answers that you, you can come up with a fee of $40 per hour for that, that are charged by contingency lawyers.
7: For a whole category, but I don't, that doesn't strike me as likely.
6: No, I think that normally the percentage of recovery is going to, in large part, reflect the the amount at stake, as well as the the merits of the particular case, and and the,
7: and, the, and the latter would be quite uh, quite counterproductive as far as the policies of the statute are concerned. That is, the riskier the case, the higher the fee you should get. Whereas the the the, the statute wants to reward lawyers for taking. Uh, Worthy cases. And what you're saying is the, the less worthy the case, the higher the fee.
6: Uh, that's correct. And that, also, that reasoning also punishes defendants who have the most meritorious defenses. The, the defendants who are most difficult to prevail against uh, should, in theory, uh, under the, the, the theory that our, our opponents uh, espouse, uh, be charged the highest bonuses because they are the. Are, are
4: you saying the difficulty of the case is irrelevant in computing? this magnificent certitude that we call the lodestar.
6: In practice it has turned out to be largely irrelevant because the the hourly... Well, should,
4: should trial judges be instructed that they may not take into account the difficulty of the case in, in setting the fee?
6: Not as a separate matter Justice Kennedy because the difficulty of the case is going to be reflected uh, both in the hourly rate that a, a lawyer's of the, the adequate experience is able to charge as well as the number of hours expended in, in litigating the case. Presumably the more difficult the case, the harder it will be to litigate the more hours expended and the higher the load start.
4: What about the probable merits of the case? The merits the of probability of success.
6: No, we think that the probability of success is, is irrelevant in calculating the load star and also should be irrelevant uh, as, as a separate matter. I, I
4: take sorry. it most of the circuits are in disagreement with that proposition, and most of the circuits do include a probability or likelihood of success in assessing the load star amount, or am I wrong about that?
6: Uh, basically right. The, most of the circuits have uh, in, attempted to follow uh, this court's decision in Delaware Valley, too, uh, by taking the approach proposed in the concurring decision there and look to whether the plaintiff had uh, actual difficulty in getting counsel and, uh, and secondly how, if at all, the market uh, compensates for contingency. I just want to emphasize the first point that, that even assuming we get beyond these evidentiary difficulties, uh, and decide that, in fact, the contingency market charges $40 an hour, it is still very different from saying that that's fair to charge a client um, to come, to go from that conclusion to the conclusion that this is fair to make a defendant pay. Uh, again, this, this charge is is not based on the defendant's conduct, but is based on whatever arrangement the plaintiff has made with his attorney. And we don't think that Congress intended the term reasonable attorney's fee to mean different things depending simply on what Arrangement the plaintiff has made with his attorney, and in fact this court rejected a, a similar view of congressional intent in Blanchard versus Bergeron, where it, it held that the the amount of the fee cannot be determined by whatever contract the plaintiff has made with his attorney. Well, the same principle operates here.
2: Cases where there are no damages being sought or awarded.
6: I'm I'm sorry, I don't when it's a
2: uh, where only an injunction is sought uh, why uh what what deal the what deal the, uh, what deal the uh, lawyer and his client
6: makes seems to me to be uh, irrelevant it absolutely is irrelevant in our view as well nonetheless many of the lower courts, including the court in this case has held that the This arrangement, this contingency arrangement that was in fact made is a basis for enhancing the lodestar fee by 25%. Beyond the the evidentiary problems, and and we think the unfairness problem uh, that that this uh, confronts or or assumes that Congress intended, um, there are a number of (coughs) fundamental conceptual difficulties with the market theory that is driving our (coughs) opponent's position. Um, In our view, one one essential flaw is that it assumes that litigation under fee-shifting statutes should operate in the same way as litigation does in the private market. But in fact, the very existence of the fee-shifting provision radically alters the way the litigation will proceed, as this court recognized in Evans versus Jeff D. In, in a fee-shifting case, there is this prospect of a lodestar or, or some sort of award uh, sitting at the, at the end of the litigation that will influence the way a defendant considers uh, litigating the case and and influence the defendant's judgments about making a settlement or not. That same dynamic doesn't operate in the typical contingency case, where the plaintiff in a personal injury suit, for example, pays the same amount as a judgment whether the plaintiff has a contingency arrangement with his attorney or not, and if there is a contingency arrangement, whether the the attorney is going to get 25 percent or 40 percent. The only point here is that the dynamics are different, and so there's no reason to assume that litigation should operate the way the market operates. Thank you, Mr. Seaman. Thank you. Uh,
0: Mr. Goldstein, we'll hear from you. you.
2: Mr. Seaman.
8: Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice Rehnquist, may it please the court. What did Congress mean by the term reasonable attorney's fees? There is no dispute on this record or by the parties that contingent risk of nonpayment is taken into account on occasion in the legal marketplace. In fact, the city asserts in its brief that the lodestar calculation already reflects consideration of contingency, apparently because contingency is taken into account in the legal marketplace. In its reply brief, the City reiterates that point. If the market compensates for risk of loss contingency, determination of the market rate subsumes and incorporates that factor. We're not here today to argue whether or not contingency should be taken into account in that mythical term, or that real term now that's been adopted by the court, lodestar, or after a star is determined by an enhancement or adjustment. The only issue before this court is whether the risk of non-payment because of the contingent nature of a case should be taken into account. There is no question that that is taken into account in the legal marketplace. Congress has
0: legislated... Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Goldstein, sir. you say there's no question it's taken into account in the legal marketplace, but wh- what evidence is there before us that it's taken into account in a differential in hourly rates as opposed to a percentage of recovery?
8: Well, uh, that, that's a, a good question. Is how, I'm
0: glad you think so.
8: <laughs> how, how, Uh, In this particular case, uh, there is evidence in the record that attorneys in the Burlington, Vermont market expect a higher return for their hourly time when they take a case on a contingent uh, basis.
0: Uh, In a lawyers quote a higher or simply their experience is that they take the, the that their their percentage recovery gives them a higher hourly rate
8: that's one way that it can be shown as to what expected hourly rate will be satisfactory for a lawyer to invest as mr pearson did 7 years of time and 3000 hours Uh, with only a chance of getting paid. What anticipated hourly rate? There are also other types of of evidence available on that. Uh, Justice uh, Stevens uh, pointed to uh, his experience in private practice, and uh, we have lodged with uh, the court a series of of declarations that have been used in uh, uh, fee-shifting statutes, and there's a declaration of the Mr. Kamen, who's a partner at Jenner and Block in, in Chicago, in which he uh, attaches the agreement that Jenner and Block entered into with MCI in the big antitrust lawsuit against AT&T, in which MCI agreed to, a, uh, to take half of their normal hourly rate, at a you, partial you, contingency.
0: Jenner and Block agreed to take Yes, yeah, excuse yeah. me.
8: I'm sorry. And what was the other? And and if uh, they succeeded, then they would get paid two and a half times their hourly rate, and that's set forth uh, in agreement. Another way of uh, (coughs) proving—excuse
7: me—is all by by contractual agreement. I mean, I suppose that in a particular case, a a lawyer on a non-contingent basis can cut a deal with a client, even though the market is sixty dollars. He may he may agree with a client for eighty dollars. But that's by special contractual agreement. Now, we wouldn't allow the $80 fee to be recovered simply because they bargained for it. So why should we allow the higher contingent fee to be recovered just because they bargained for it?
8: Justice Scalia, the the one contract, the contract uh, that Mr. Kamen attaches to his declaration, would not determine the market, but it would be evidence of the market. The market would... Uh, be determined by all of the contracts, all of the evidence that was put before a court by both sides in order to present what the market would pay a lawyer for a comparable case. That is what Congress, we submit, intended by adopting the term reasonable attorney's fees. Congress has used this term for, over, for approximately 80 years in a whole series of statutes, statutes enacted way before the environmental statutes at issue uh, in this
2: case. Mr. Goldstein, could I, could I ask you, uh, am I right in reading the, uh, the court below uh, as a, not uh, thinking that Delaware Valley too uh, was, should be used as any guide uh, to resolving the fee issue, and then instead it just relied on one of its prior, one of its prior authorities, uh, and certainly didn't go through the the uh, approach that uh, Justice O'Connor uh, suggested.
8: Yes, that's correct, Justice White. It relied on Friends of the Earth, a uh, yes. Second Circuit mm-hmm. uh, authority, which in fact adopted part of the prior to. Uh, uh, the Justice O'Connor's opinion adopted part of that opinion or set out uh, what became Was that Was there opinion. any
2: proof in this case uh, uh, as to uh, as to uh, what it would take to get a lawyer uh, uh, for this plaintiff?
8: Yes, the only proof in this case uh, is uh, that there would need to be an enhanced hourly rate, that is a enhancement over what's paid win or lose in order to get a lawyer in the Burlington market.
2: You mean they just referred to the market and decided what it would take to uh, get a lawyer in this case, rather than having any kind of an actual proof that this plaintiff tried to get a lawyer and couldn't find one or what?
8: Well, like uh, the standard adopted uh, by Justice uh, O'Connor, the uh, proof depended upon uh, what was generally expected in the Burlington, uh, Vermont market, and uh, Mr. Pearson and the Dags put in the affidavits of three practitioners in the Burlington market in addition to three affidavits by members of, of the firm saying that uh, <clears throat> there was no incentive to take a case but without market- an a in- within-
2: the court below didn't uh, determine this fee based on based on either uh, the the uh, <clears throat> either the uh, either the opinions in uh, in uh, Delaware too. They didn't use the standard of uh, of either <clears throat> the opinion that I wrote or the opinion that Justice O'Connor wrote.
8: No, that's correct, Your Honor. But the issue before this court. Uh, the, the, the question presented is whether district courts have, under any cir- circumstances, the discretion to consider the risk of non-payment in determining what is a reasonable fee, not the, not the method. The uh, lower courts both said that but for the opportunity for enhancement to an hourly rate, there would be substantial difficulties for a plaintiff to obtain counsel in the Vermont uh, marketplace. Prior to the passage of these uh, uh, statutes, it was common under the reasonable fee provision in the antitrust statutes and the security statutes for lower courts to take into account contingent risk of nonpayment in determining a reasonable fee. It was against this backdrop that Congress legislated in the environmental area and adopted the reasonable fee statute in the 1970s. In interpreting these statutes prior to the passage of the environmental statutes in the 70s, clearly risk of non-payment was taken into account. Congress has to be credited with knowing how a statutory term that they use in the 1970s has been interpreted from 1914 when the Clayton Act was passed until the 1970s. This is especially true where, as pointed out by the American Bar Association in a forceful way in its amicus brief, that the fact that contingent risk is taken into account in the American legal marketplace is notorious. Everyone knows it. Now, how it's taken into account in a specific case may vary. All that we are saying is that the court should not turn a blind eye to the reality of the legal marketplace and permit, where appropriate, local courts to consider the risk of contingent nonpayment. Moreover,
2: what claim, what cl- what claim of enhancement was presented to the court?
8: Uh, a 2.0 claim, uh, that is a doubling, the court uh, ruled that a 1.25, that is a 25 percent mm-hmm. enhancement, was appropriate and would present... Did you, were, were you
2: claiming that, uh, that it was a 50 percent enhancement really reflected what the market in Burlington was?
8: A doubling, yes. The, uh,
2: and the court said, sorry, uh, sorry, that isn't what the market requires that, in that's Burlington? That's correct. Now, how did, he, how did How does the court go around figuring out uh, how to disagree with these experts in the market?
8: The the court, as uh, courts do, uh, sometimes uh, reject uh, experts, sometimes reject testimony, and sometimes accept it uh, in part. And of course, does the, it
2: does it involve a does it involve a court uh, uh, deciding what the degree of risk is? The if you're going to enhance for risk, uh, I suppose you'd give a different enhancement for a small risk and a bigger one for a large risk.
8: Well, this court... Is that right? Well, I'm not sure if the question goes to what this judge did or if it's a general question that you're asking me, uh, Justice White.
2: I'll, I'll take it both ways. Okay.
8: What this, what this court did was not look at the risk of this particular... Excuse me. This court did look at the risk of this particular case and say that it, that it was and a risk... Do you think it, that's
2: proper? No. I didn't think you did because you put in – you asked for 50 percent, which you thought reflected the market. No, no I, I, I don't You think must have thought it reflected the market.
8: Excuse me. Uh, we think that the approach suggested by Justice O'Connor in uh, Delaware Valley, too, is the appropriate way of determining uh, whether an enhancement should be awarded and, if so, the degree of the enhancement, and that is – to look at the risk in a comparable class of cases, which in this particular situation would be complex, contingent civil litigation in the Vermont marketplace.
2: 50%. I mean, a a 50% enhancement.
8: Whatever the the evidence would show.
2: Well, you thought it showed uh, 1.5.
8: 2.0. I
2: mean, 2.0.
8: Yes. but the analysis that was done in this case, and again, the issue of how it should be done is well, not if you before the court.
2: If you thought it ought to be a, done according to Justice O'Connor's opinion, which would have come out with 2.0, you should have cross-petitioned for not enough money.
8: Well, I think there's a time, well, per, perhaps uh, we should have, yes. but we did not. And the only issue that's before this court is whether uh, enhancement for contingent risk can be taken into account uh, under any conditions by the local courts, like this judge uh, did. Let me just add one other thing to to answering your your question, Justice White, and that is, unlike some of the technical issues that were before the court in this case, that is, uh, the extent of the toxic uh, waste in this particular dump and how it was impacting on the Burlington uh, marketplace, which I don't think the... Uh, local judge, I may be wrong, had any particular knowledge about. Determining the legal marketplace and appropriate and reasonable attorney's fees is something that, as this court has said on a number of occasions, that courts have familiarity with. Justice Stevens referred back to his experience in private practice. Judge Billings has a lot of experience as a state court judge, as a federal court judge, as a practitioner in the local marketplace in Burlington. There should not be a national rule. The situation may be quite different in Burlington, Vermont and where I practice in Oakland, California. Moreover, Congress well knows how to limit the award of attorney's fees. It has done that on many occasions. In in these statutes, Congress put a standard, reasonable attorney's fees. Congress placed no limits on this standard, as Congress has done in many other statutes, to name just a couple. In the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, Congress said no bonus or multiplier may be used in the calculation of the reasonable attorney's fees. There was no such restriction in this case. In the Equal Access to Justice Act, Congress said reasonable attorney's fees, prevailing market rates, but not more than $75 an hour. Uh, there's a host, as this Court well knows, of other statutes with limitations on fees.
0: Some of those limitations that Congress put in, on in later statutes were in response to the emerging fee jurisprudence of this Court, were they not?
8: Well, and I think, yes, Mr. Ch- Chief Justice, sir. Uh, and I, but I think it goes to, to prove our point rather than undercut it. Because, for example, let's take the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, which was passed in 1986. In that statute, there was a limitation put on uh, bonuses and multipliers. At almost the exact same time as this act was passed, Congress also uh, passed the Superfund uh, uh, law, uh, mending CERCLA to put in a citizen's supervision. In that law, passed at the same time when a limitation was put in the IDEA statute, Congress put in, the Superfund law, the exact same reasonable attorney's fee statute as exists in the two statutes before this court, the Clean Water Act and RICRA. And I think when you take all of these statutes together, Uh, you come to a conclusion that Congress, under these statutes, where it did not put limitations on reasonable attorney's fees, meant for the market to govern, and that contingent risk may be taken into account under appropriate circumstances. Uh, Justice Scalia's statement in Casey, I think, is right to the point, where – the court uh, said a comparison of statutes is proper because statutes are construed to contain that permissible meaning which fits most logically and comfortably with the body of both previously and subsequently enacted law.
7: It, it's harder to do that when, when, uh, when the later law is, is a specific response to, uh, to a judicial decision that, that's uh, come in the interim, because it, it, if you know what I mean, it it, it may be an indication that that Congress uh, Mm -hmm. thought that the judicial decision was wrong, in in which case they would have meant without that qualification what they meant uh, in the earlier statute. Are you following me?
8: I I, I am, but but
7: perhaps I am Mr. And that that was not the case in Casey. Uh, There there you had uh, qualifications upon the term that had been adopted down through the years and not in response to any particular line of jurisprudence.
8: I'm not trying to say there's a direct relationship with the case, it's just the the principle. But I think my answer to Chief Justice Rehnquist's question still applies, and that is Congress certainly looked with open eyes uh, to the possibility of of contingency fee enhancements after a certain uh, point. decided to include such enhancements in some statutes and not in others. In a statute very much like the ones before this court, Congress decided not to place a restriction. And let me just add one uh, other uh, part to it. There were restrictions on, uh, on fees that, that Congress uh, uh, put in prior to uh, 1972 and prior to when anybody, to, as far as I know, heard of the term lodestar.
7: Contingencies. Uh, I mean, that's the only kind of restriction that I think really, really speaks clearly well, to, to what we're talking about in here.
8: the American-Mexican uh, uh, Commercial Convention Act of 1964, are uh, reasonable attorney's fees that uh, shall not exceed 10% of the amount awarded. And a similar restriction... Uh, no, but, but, but you, you,
7: you have some later statute that, uh, that, that specifically says shall not include any uh, amount for contingency.
8: Well, for you, bonus
7: or multipliers. Bonus or multipliers. I, you know, I really think that, uh, that that's impressive. I, I don't think the, the mere fact, however, that uh, some other statutes limit the upper uh, upper amount or said not excess in excess of 10 percent. I don't think that necessarily speaks to whether whether Congress uh, thought that a contingent fee would be allowed.
0: Uh,
8: Justice Glee, I hate to uh, argue with you if you say an argument. No, I want with you to. That's I mean, I'm not raising it with you for, you know. But le- let me just say that I think that, you know, the terms changed. And, you know, bonus, multipliers, lodestar, I don't think Congress would have thought in those terms in the 1940s and the 1950s or early, the early 1960s. What they thought about when they wanted to limit contingency enhancements was limit the percentage. And that's exactly what Congress uh, did. They okay, were
2: still saying a reasonable fee, but uh, no allowance for contingencies.
8: Uh, reasonable attorney's fees, which shall not exceed ten percent of the amount, or
2: uh, will not uh, reflect any uh, any risk
8: but above the, the the amount of risk no, reflected but, by the ten percent. But but
2: even with even with that limitation, it still would have been a reasonable attorney's fee.
8: Well, there was a limitation on what could be a reasonable attorney.
2: Well, it was still reasonable.
8: By by the definition under that act?
2: Yes, under that act. And, of course, uh, what Congress meant by reasonable in one act, uh, especially a later one, there shouldn't be a measure of what they intended reasonable to be in an earlier act, I suppose you would argue correctly.
8: Um. I I think Congress determined that a reasonable attorney's fees under a particular act, which could be reasonable with limits, but with other acts, such as the ones before this court, a reasonable attorney's fees would be one that would be motored by the economic forces in the legal marketplace without limit, other than the limit of the discipline of the marketplace. I don't think this question is a lot different in theory or practice than many other questions that this court has wrestled with, with respect to the interpretation of the term reasonable attorney's fees. In wrestling with these other terms, this court has looked to the marketplace. Uh, For example, in uh, Blum v. Stenson, uh, the court considered what should be the hourly rate Factor that's involved in the load store. Uh, The uh, uh, court uh, said that the hourly rate would be calculated by prevailing market rates for similar services by lawyers of reasonably comparable skill, experience, and reputation. Again, go to the market. In Missouri v. Jenkins, the issue of delay came up. Should delay be compensated for? That is, Mr. Pearson has... uh, put in more than 3,000 hours in this case to close the toxic dump in Burlington. He's not gotten paid a penny. He advanced $16,000 out of his own pocket. He hasn't gotten reimbursed yet. Should the delay in payment uh, be compensated for? In Missouri v. Jenkins, the court said that since the market treats compensation paid years after it was rendered, Differently from compensation paid when the services were rendered, courts may consider delay in determining a reasonable fee. Without going into it, the court also looked to the marketplace to determine what is appropriate compensation for paralegals and law clerks, which is, and relied on the market. Compensation for paralegals and law clerks is nowhere near as embedded in the marketplace for legal services in this country as is payment for contingent risk. All we are saying is that as this court has directed local courts to look at the marketplace to resolve these other questions, which can be difficult, the court should also direct lower courts to look at uh, the marketplace to determine payment for uh, the contingent risk of, of nonpayment. The last part of my argument is that Justice O'Connor's test, which borrows in significant part from Justice White's opinion in Delaware Valley, is workable. Not only is it workable, but it has worked. The Court now has the experience of several years of implementation of the Delaware Valley test. Nine circuits have applied it. We go through the way the circuits have applied it in our brief. And courts have applied it; they've awarded contingent risk in some cases. So, what should
2: we do? Uh, this isn't the standard the lower court used. Uh, they rejected the standard uh, and moved, to, moved to, and decided on another standard. Should we just, if we agree with you, shouldn't we remand for recomputation of the attorneys' fees? I, I, I have two answers
8: to that. First, it is not the issue of whether or not the (coughs) enhancement was correctly calculated in this case is not before the court in the question presented. The only question is whether or not the the court had discretion. If the court limits its opinion in this case to the question presented, then it should affirm. Mm -hmm. If the court sets the standard and, as we uh, suggest, adopt. Justice O'Connor's standard, and feels that it should apply to this case, even though it's outside the question presented, then, of course, it should remand the case. Justice O'Connor's test, we believe, uh, provides the answer to a lot of the legitimate concerns raised by Justice White in the uh, opinion in uh, Delaware uh, Valley. If, as Justice O'Connor suggests, contingent enhancement is based upon a comparable class of cases, then the discipline of the market serves the purpose of the statute. It serves to weed out the less worthy cases. An attorney, as we
7: suggest... There's no market for contingent fees in non-monetary cases. I mean, there are for Sherman Act cases. But, but for cases seeking injunction against federal action, what, what, what's the contingent fee market? You're, you're going to have to make it up.
8: Well, the Congress addressed that problem, and that's one of the reasons there's, there are attorney fee statutes in a case like this in which it principally is focused on an injunction uh, to close a toxic landfill or a civil rights case where it's to integrate uh, a plant. And Congress uh, said that the court should look to cases in compar- comparable cases and in particular and I, I'm now referring to the legislative history of the 1976 civil rights act which of course have looked to cases that present a comparable difficulty such as antitrust cases and particularly said that civil rights plaintiffs should not be put in a different and less beneficial place
0: Congress, Simply, Congress said all this where in uh, the, the the Senate report, not in the statute.
8: Congress, yes, Congress relied on the term uh, "reasonable attorney's fees."
0: And the committees uh, used this language. You're
8: referring. That's correct, right, Mr. Chief Justice. And but. The term reasonable attorney's fees has, as, as I've discussed, been used to uh, focus the courts upon the relevant market as best as the courts can find it. Uh, in conclusion, local courts have discretion to consider the risk of nonpayment as a part of reasonable attorney's fees. The courts should have that discretion, just as local courts consider other aspects of the award of reasonable attorney's fees. In the legal marketplace, fixed fees are treated differently, generally treated differently than contingent fees. The two should not be considered the same in the determination of a reasonable attorney's fees.
2: I would, I would think if it's uh, I would think the way to go about this compensation for risk would be to uh, pay the lawyer when he loses. He's taken. We, we um, You know, you want these people uh, to have, have lawyers, and, and if a lawyer is willing to take this case, uh, he's ba- some are, lawyers are bound to lose. You ought to pay him for that rather than, rather than have the defendant, when he wins, have to pay for the cases when you lose.
8: Justice White, I would disagree with you on that, but the important point is that Congress has decided that question and determined that only prevailing parties obtain uh, fees. And the result of that, coupled with Justice O'Connor's test, is that the marketplace forces attorneys to weed out the less worthy cases and uh, to uh, select the strongest cases. Lastly, under different statutes and for many years, courts have considered risk of nonpayment in determining reasonable attorney's fees. The court should affirm this longstanding practice and adopt the practical and workable approach suggested by Justice
1: O'Connor. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Goldstein. The case is submitted.